Good morning. What we're going to do today is finish a couple of slides on growth hormone, then move on to prolactin, which is also still your anterior pituitary hormone, and then we're going to talk about your two posterior pituitary hormones. So let's start with a clicker question first. So if anyone wants to click, this would be the time I'm going to move forward. So please click for your attendance point. Okay. So, all right, let's move on to the next slide. Okay. So we have answer C and both B and C. Okay, so um, that answer E. So answer E would be the right choice. And the reason for that is we are asking if it's prepubertal, they would have giantism or gigantism as well as what does growth hormone do because of its direct effects on metabolism. It is also going to cause hyperglycemia, right? So, as, so B and C would be the best choice here. Uh, I think I'm going to... I'm just going to switch back to regular slides because I'm going to try to see if I can use the laser pointer. Let me see. Oh, I guess I'll have to. Okay, so let's talk about growth hormone mm, deficiency. We talked about uh, excessive growth hormone causes acromegaly. But you can have growth hormone deficiency, and there are many, many conditions that could cause growth hormone deficiency. You could have a pure growth hormone deficiency, and that could be either due to lack of growth hormone uh, secreted by your anterior pituitary or because of resistance. Uh, in your receptors, or the, there's peripheral resistance to the growth hormone, and that could also result. If there are defects in your receptors or you don't have enough receptors, that could also cause deficiency of your growth hormone. Again, panhypopituitarism means you, your pituitary gland 
uh, does not synthesize. For some reason, it has um, gotten ischemic or atrophied and it does not synthesize or, or secrete any hormones. Basically, it's non-functional in panhypopituitarism. So if it occurs in children, if you have growth hormone uh, deficiency in children, it is going to cause dwarfism. So this is going to cause dwarfism. And again, if you only have pure growth hormone deficiency, you will have dwarfism. But if you have panhypopituitarism, of course, they're going to lack other hormones. So they will have, I have it on a later slide where I talk about children, they would have other hormone deficiencies too. If it, uh, we did talk about uh, growth hormone deficiency, uh, uh, we talked about Afri African pygmies and Lori Levon dwarfs. Uh, in a previous slide yesterday, and we said African pygmies and these uh, levilloran dwarfs cannot synthesize IGFs. But there's a difference between these two, because in African pygmies, they don't have a receptor problem. Their receptors are, their receptors are normal. They don't have a receptor problem. Their receptors are normal. That means all the direct effects of your growth hormone will be preserved. Only thing is they cannot synthesize IGFs, if they cannot synthesize IGFs, obviously they're not going to grow tall. But because the direct actions are preserved, what that means is your growth hormone levels, uh, well, uh, your growth hormone levels will be high because you don't have IGFs to do the feedback, and also they would wind up with hyperglycemia and all the anti-insulin, uh, uh, anti-insulin effects. They would have high free fatty acid levels and so on because you have growth hormone. The direct effects are preserved. But it's not the case in, uh, in case of Levy-Laurie dwarfs. They cannot synthesize the IGFs because they have a receptor problem. The receptors are defective. So the growth hormone binding to its receptor is not going to be effective. So even though they can't synthesize IGFs, not, uh, because they cannot synthesize IGFs, they're not going to grow tall but also the direct actions of growth hormone are going to be impaired. Uh, so instead of hyperglycemia, these individuals may have hypoglycemia. So there's a difference between these two, right? Because even the direct actions of your growth hormone will be affected because it's a receptor problem. So that's the difference, right? In African pygmies, there's no problem with receptors, so the direct actions of growth hormone would be preserved. So I want you to make a note of that. So if you ever have a question, I want you to get this question correct, right? And in levy Lauren dwarfs, that is not the case because the receptors are defective. So how do you treat these individuals? The way you can treat them is for dwarfism, what you can do is you can give them IGFs, and if you pick it up early enough and give them IGFs before the closure of the epiphyseal plates, then they can still achieve normal heights, whether they're levy Lauren dwarfs or uh, African pygmies. They will achieve normal heights, provided their thyroid hormone and other hormones are within normal limits. Again, growth hormone is species-specific. And what do we mean by that? Oh, okay, before we do that, let me talk about adults. What are the effects of adults if they have growth hormone deficiency? There are no known effects. But however, it's been shown in elderly patients that uh, it's, it increases vigor and vitality, it builds muscle mass and decreases adiposity. And so that's one of the reasons why there's an abuse among uh, elderly adults, because they feel good, right? Because it increases their vigor and vitality. But we don't recommend it, or you won't want to administer growth hormone injections, 
because of the anti-insulinogenic effects. If it wasn't for that, it would, have been, it, it would not have been an issue. Again, growth hormone is species-specific. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the growth hormone, only human growth hormone will work in humans. If you give animal growth hormone, so from cattle, it will not be effective. So if any of you are worried about uh, ingesting meats uh, in animals that are treated with growth hormone, you don't need to have any worries about it, so no worries there, because it's not going to affect you. So it's pretty safe in terms of growth hormone. I don't know about the other hormones, but definitely as far as growth hormone goes. So this is a photograph of a giant as well as a dwarf. And it's easy to tell which one is a giant, which one is a dwarf, right? One had growth hormone excess. So he has growth hormone excess and he had growth hormone deficiency. So, but what I wanted to show you in this is uh, these individuals, the, all the body size, all the organs and body size grows in proportion, even though you have tish increased tissue growth and all, all the organs um, and the body size grows in proportion, whether they're dwarfs or, mm, or giants. Also, what I want to show you is on the left side, you have an x-ray. Normally, when we x-ray our palms or soles, in between the palms, you sh this is all translucent. But in this case, you have opacity here, and that has to do with the soft tissue growth. So normally, you should not see this on an x-ray. It should be translucent in these areas, and that's what this uh, is showing. So this is in a patient with acromegaly. Also, when you look at the heel pads, again, you have the soft tissue shadow, and that is because of excess tissue growth. So that is what uh, you're seeing in this x-ray. Normally, it should not be present. It should be translucent and not opaque. So that pretty much finishes your growth hormone. The next thing we're going to talk about is panhypopituitarism. Panhypopituitarism means your, uh, your pituitary gland is non-functional for whatever reason. It could be genetic or, or congenital or it could be acquired. And the most common cause why it's acquired is, uh, is in females who are postpartum and they have hemorrhage. And because your pituitary gland increases uh, in size to about 50% or more during pregnancy, if they have uh, excess bleeding or postpartum hemorrhage, then they would get ischemia of your pituitary gland and then the gland would no longer produce, would become non-functional and can no longer produce hormones because all the cells are going to uh, undergo apoptosis and they're going to die. So pretty much that would be because of ischemia, you cut off the blood supply. So it would not be functional. So that is the most common cause. And if it happens postpartum, that is known as Sheehan syndrome. So if on a test or exam, if we are talking about Sheehan syndrome, we are talking about postpartum hemorrhage in females uh, leading to panhypopituitarism. So if it occurs in children, of course, they're going to be dwarfs. And because they, they're going to be deficient in their LH and FSH, they're going to wind up with, so none of their sex hormones are going to be synthesized, so they're going to wind up with hypogonadism. And also the thyroid hormone will not be synthesized because the TSH is missing, so you can't synthesize uh, thyroid hormones. So they would wind up with mental retardation. And again, thyroid hormone would also contribute to dwarfism. And not mentioned here in children is they would also have glucocorticoid deficiency just like in adults. In adults, it has three major effects because 
uh, they've achieved their full height, so deficiency, uh, so growth hormone will have no effects because they've already achieved their normal heights, their epiphyseal plates are closed. So deficiency of growth hormone is not going to affect them that much. But what is going to be affected are your other three hormones, they would wind up with hypothyroidism, they would have decreased sexual functions, and they would get deficiency of the glucocorticoids. So the first two are easy to treat, but the sex function is hard to treat. And the last thing I want to mention are the pituitary stock injuries. I, I believe I had a question on this one. Somebody was reading ahead and they asked me a question and one of the questions is, why do they get hyperprolactinemia? We did say that if you, uh, you can get pituitary stock injury in uh, high speed accidents where you get a whiplash injury, in this case the stock is going to sever. If the stock is going to sever, then what's going to happen is uh, you're going to lose all your anterior pituitary hormones because uh, your releasing hormones cannot stimulate your anterior pituitary hormones except for prolactin because prolactin is under the tonic inhibition of your dopamine. So if you sever the stock, the inhibition from the dopamine is gone, so the prolactin from the pituitary gland is go uh, going to be released, so you have high levels of prolactin. Of course, they're also going to wind up with diabetes insipidus because normally ADH would also be affected. So if you have no ADH, then they would have diabetes insipidus plus uh, deficiency of all your anterior pituitary hormones except for prolactin. So they would wind up with hyperprolactinemia. But again, that hyperprolactinemia is going to be transient. So that finishes your growth hormones. The next hormone we're going to talk about is prolactin. Your prolactin <coughs> is, again, a large peptide, just like your growth hormone. Your growth hormone was 191 peptide. This is 199. What it means is it's going to have a long half-life. Again, prolactin is not gender-specific, and what that means is uh, it's present in both males and females, but the function in males is unknown. So let's take a look at, uh, again, we did say that they both uh, belong to a group of lactogens, the uh, prolactin, uh, in high quantities, uh, will not, uh, we say, uh, will, can cross-react with the growth hormone receptors, but does not have growth hormone-like effects. But it's not the case with the growth hormone. So what are the functions of prolactin? The major function of prolactin is breast development in females and also milk production. So that is a major function of that. However, it does have a side effect, and that is suppression of your GnRH levels. If you suppress your GnRH, that means you're going to decrease your LH and FSH. So these females are going, going to have an ovulatory cycles, and if it happens in males, if they have high levels of prolactin for whatever reason, or if they have a prolactin-secreting tumor, then they would also get suppression of GnRH and they would have decreased sperm production. <coughs> so let's take a look at the feedback loop. So your hypothalamus is going to synthesize and secrete your dopamine, which is also known as prolactin inhibiting factor, and that will act on your anterior pituitary cells to suppress your prolactin. So, uh, it's, so this is under the tonic inhibition of uh, your dopamine. But, uh, but this is going to change 
in females' reproductive lives, when the female gets pre pregnant, then this suppression is gone because you have estrogen. So let's take a look and how can you increase your prolactin levels. So that's under normal physiologic conditions. So what really stimulates, the, what really stimulates your prolactin is your estrogen. In pregnancy, you have high levels of estrogen. That is going to feed back onto your hypothalamus to suppress the actions of dopamine. If you suppress the actions of dopamine, that is going to increase your prolactin levels. What the estrogen also does is it also sensitizes your TRH receptors or promotes expression of your TRH receptors. And you do have TRH, which is your thyroid-stimulating hormone. Uh, that is present in physiologic doses. But normally under physiologic uh, doses, it does not stimulate prolactin release. But under the influence of estrogen, uh, when you have increased expression of your receptors, it would be sensitive to even low levels of TRH, and that would also increase your prolactin levels. And right now it's thought that the TRH is the prolactin releasing factor in high doses. So let's take a look at the actions of each of these hormones. Your dopamine binding receptor will activate your cyclic, uh, will actually suppress your cyclic AMP, and that would decrease your intracellular calcium into the cells and, and uh, inhibit the release of your prolactin. It will also inhibit the release of your, um, it will also inhibit the synthesis of your prolactin. Your prolactin itself, the target tissue is the breast tissue, and it, uh, and it, in the breast, it will bind to its receptor, and bind, this is the receptor, this is the second messenger it's going to activate in the tyrosine kinase, and then promote modulation of gene expression and prolactin-like effects. So the next slide is basically a summary slide telling you, uh, uh, talking about the feedback loop and, and also the actions of your prolactin. This slide summarizes very nicely the actions of prolactin. So what does prolactin do? Prolactin causes breast differentiation, it promotes ductal proliferation, it also promotes this um, glandular development, glandular tissue developments. So these are some of the functions. It also promotes the synthesis of enzymes uh, for milk production. So it's going to promote the synthesis of enzymes for your milk production. So, the so it has two functions, development, breast development and milk production. So now let's take a look at what happens if you have, hmm. let's look at the disorders of your anterior pituitary gland. And the first thing we're going to talk about is prolactin or prolactinomas. So this is an MRI of a 16-year-old patient who was seen by her physician because of increasing headaches uh, for the last several months. And she also noticed that her periods uh, were irregular and then it stopped. So she comes to a physician. The physician says, okay, let's test you for pregnancy, and she denies having sexual partners, but uh, the physician still tests her for pregnancy because that's the most common cause of amenorrhea in young females. And the urine test was negative for pregnancy, so she was not pregnant. So then he decides to drop prolactin levels, and he noted that her prolactin levels were pretty high. And he also did an MRI, and he noticed that uh, she had a tumor which was mm, below 10 millimeters in size, about approximately nine millimeters in size. So at that time, what he decided is he decided to have her put on a bromocryptin, which is a dopamine analog, okay. And, um, and so that would, 
so he starts on that medication and asks her to come back in six months. But she returns in about four months because her headache started increasing and, uh, she, and she complained that she could not read the pages on either side. What was she complaining about? Bitemporal hemianopsia because her uh, optic nerve has been compressed. So this was a repeat MRI. On repeat MRI, what he noted was that this tumor, instead of being suppressed, has grown to an, um, uh, it has increased in size. It was greater than 15 millimeters in size, and that was contributing to her symptoms. So at this point, she was referred for surgery, and the tumor was uh, resected. So she had resection of her tumor, and the results were um, um, favorable, and she re uh, reverted back to normal. So she basically had a tumor, prolactinoma, and prolactinomas are pretty benign usually. They're benign tumors. Only thing is when they enlarge, they are going to compress on your optic chiasm and cause visual problems and cause headaches and so on. So uh, they are most common tumors, about 26% 20, of the adult, adult cases. If they're less than 10 millimeters, they're called microadenomas, and if they're greater than 15, millimeters, they cause, they're called macroadenomas. And usually, microadenomas usually respond to your uh, medical treatment, but the macroadenomas don't, so you have, to, uh, you have to resect them, and that's exactly what happened. So what happens if you have deficiency of your prolactin? Uh, it's not a big deal, uh, unless the female uh, was pregnant and has delivered the baby and she wants to breastfeed her baby. So if she wants to breastfeed her baby, obviously without prolactin, she's not going to synthesize milk and she would not be able to lactate. So that would be an issue then. Otherwise, it's not an issue. In males, we don't know the function of prolactin. They do have some prolactin levels, but we're not sure about uh, the function. So that finishes your anterior pituitary hormones. Next, we're going to talk about your posterior pituitary hormones. So the first hormone we're going to talk about is your antidiuretic hormone. Again, the posterior pituitary hormones, we have two of them, right? Your oxytocin and your ADH. ADH goes by several names. It is known as arginine vasopressin, which is your AVP, or simply vasopressin, and they're both very similar in size, and they're called nonopeptides because they're made up of nine peptides, and they only differ in two amino acid sequences. Uh, so it, what that means is in high concentrations, it can have effects of the other. They both synthesize with something called pre from a prohormone, uh, which is associated with neurohypophysin. Oxytocin is associated with uh, neurohypophysin 1, and ADH is with neurohypophysin 2. And so what that means is if you have defects in your neurohypophysin, then these individuals are going to have diabetes insipidus. So what is the trigger for ADH secretion? We said it was synthesized in your uh, hypothalamus and stored in your posterior pituitary. So the way it's going to be released or synthesized is uh, it requires an action potential. So you require an action potential to release the hormone and also for synthesis of the hormone. So what are the triggers? The triggers for release of that is increase in your plasma osmolarity. The normal plasma osmolarity is about 290 milliosmoles. Uh, 
per liter, so it is 290 milliosmoles. If you increase your plasma osmolarity for whatever reason, there are uh, osmoreceptors in your hypothalamus that will sense this plasma osmolarity and uh, trigger an action potential to release your ADH. The other trigger for release of your ADH is decrease in your ECF volume. But the ECF volume has to drop significantly at, at least by 10%. So that's a secondary trigger. The primary trigger is the plasma osmolarity. So remember that primary trigger is your plasma osmolarity. If you increase your plasma osmolarity, you're going to get release of your ADH. The secondary trigger is your ECF volume decline, and that has to drop significantly uh, up to about 10% or more. Uh, that's when that would be released. And this is mediated through your baroreceptor reflexes, and that would promote synthesis, of your, uh, synthesis and release of your ADH. So let's look at ADH and what its target tissues are. The target tissue for ADH is the principal cell in your kidneys. So just to orient you on this diagram, this is a schematic diagram of your principal cell. And this is the basolateral side, and this is the luminal side of your nephron. On your basolateral side, you have something called V2 receptors. V2 receptors. Normally, I wouldn't ask you to remember the receptors, but I want you to remember the V2 and V1 receptors that we're going to talk about because they do come, uh, they do show up on your boards. So the ADH will bind to the V2 receptors, and the binding of uh, ADH to the V2 receptors will increase your levels of cyclic EMP and uh, cause translocation of your aquaporin two molecules, which are your water channels onto the luminal side of the membrane so you can get increase in your water resorption. Uh, there are nine types of aquaporins, out of which aquaporin 2 is the only one under the influence of your ADH. Normally, aquaporin 2 molecules are located in a vesicle inside your principal cell. That's where they reside. But under the influence of ADH, they're going to be translocated onto the luminal side. Again, you have aquaporin. So once the water comes into the cell, you have aquaporin 3 and 4, so the water would get resorbed through those into the system. So uh, it also not only promotes the translocation, but it also promotes synthesis of your aquaporin 2 molecules. So your ADH has another target cell besides your principal cell in the kidney, and that is your vascular smooth muscle. So it affects the blood vessels. So on, in your blood vessels, you have something called your V1 receptor. So the ADH binding to the V1 receptor will increase your interest, uh, will stimulate your IP3DAG, and that's your second messenger. And that is going to increase your intracellular calcium and cause smooth muscle contraction. So you would get constriction of your, smooth, uh, of your blood vessels. So that is through your V1 receptor, whereas the water absorption is through your V2 receptors. And the reason why it's ADH is also called vasopressin or arginine vaso vasopressin is because of this effect, because it causes vasoconstriction. And that's why uh, we call it vasopressin or arginine vasopressin. So this is basically summarizing the uh, actions of, this is a summary slide of the actions of ADH. We said ADH is sensitive to the plasma, uh, is released in 
relation to your plasma osmolarity. If you have increase in your plasma osmolarity, normally the plasma osmolarity is about 290 milliosmoles. And if you get an increase in your plasma osmolarity, mm, there are osmoreceptors that are going to uh, sense that because they're going to shrink, and that will feed back onto your hypothalamus and trigger an action potential to synthesize and secrete your ADH. And this ADH will then uh, target your principal cells to restore your fluid balance. Again, the other trigger, the secondary trigger, is fluid loss. But the fluid loss has to be about 10% or greater for this uh, to occur for this reflex to be activated. And that would drop your mean arterial blood pressure. And that would decrease your baroreceptor firing and increase your sympathetic tone. And again, that would release your ADH or, uh, or AVP and restore your fluid balance. And that's how. Uh, so this summarizes very nicely the actions of your ADH. Okay, let's move forward. Okay, that's pretty good. Majority of the class got it correct. And what we're, the, only, uh, the only hormone that is going to cross-react with your prolactin receptor is your growth hormone. And so most likely the tumor is secreting in the growth hormone because it's cross-reacting with that. We know it's not prolactin, it's cross-reacting with, with that receptor. It's obviously not ADH. Somebody said ADH, not oxytocin, not ACTH has nothing to do with that, and neither does FSH. Okay. So that would be the best answer. So let's take a look at the disorders of ADH secretion. So what we have here is a 48-year-old male who presents with a history of polydipsia and polyuria for the last several weeks. He has no significant past medical history except that four months ago, he was diagnosed with uh, manic depressive disorder, and he was started on lithium at that time. And four months later, he's presenting with these symptoms, polydipsia and polyuria. And you do a physical exam, and you notice that he has mildly dry lips and mucous membranes. So what causes, uh, when you talk about polydipsia and polyuria, what are you thinking about? High glucose levels? Yeah? Okay, high glucose is plausible. Yes? What? You can't hear? I'm sorry. Is that better? Okay. Did you hear the first part? 
One, okay. So we have a 42-year-old male. I'm just going to repeat this. We have a 42-year-old male who comes in complaining of polydipsia and polyuria. He has no significant past medical history except for, um, uh, except that he was diagnosed with manic depressive disorder about four months ago, and he was started on lithium at that time. So the question I'm asking is, what causes polydipsia and polyuria, and what are you thinking whenever somebody complains? So what is the first thing you would comes to your mind? What? Glucose? What, did you, what are they saying? I can't hear. Huh? Diabetes. What kind of diabetes? Mellitus or? Insipidus, because we're doing ADH, yes, but you would also think of diabetes mellitus, so you would actually test them for glucose. Okay, so let's take a look and see what his glucose levels are. His glucose levels were normal, so obviously he does not have diabetes mellitus, but he has mild elevation of his sodium levels. Uh, so, so let's take a look and see why he has that, okay? So, uh, so a diagnosis, and his urine was very dilute, so when we tested his urine, so this combination tells you that he probably has diabetes insipidus. So diabetes insipidus is of two kinds. You have, you could, it could be of central origin, or it could be of um, peripheral origin, which is your nephrogenic origin. It could be a nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, or it could be a central diabetes insipidus. In both cases, you would get an increase in your serum osmolarity and very dilute urine. So how do you distinguish between these two? And the way you can distinguish between these two is you can place them. I don't know. If I do this, it's causing a lot of. Is this bothering you when the noise from the microphone? No, it's OK. Can you hear me now? At the back. So if you do have, so, so how do you distinguish between these two? And the way you can distinguish between these two is you can have these individuals on water restriction for about four to six hours. So you draw a baseline level uh, of, of the, uh, you can do a baseline urine level, osmolarity. You can check the urine osmolarity or even plasma osmolarity. You can do a baseline pretty much. And in this graph, what we have here is timeline on your x-axis and urine osmolarity on your y-axis. And what you can see is in these individuals, because the urine is very dilute, their osmolarity is close to zero you can see that it's close to zero, whether it's central or nephrogenic diabetes. So how do you distinguish between these two? The way you can distinguish between these two is you're asking them, you ask, you're asking them not to drink any water or you do a water deprivation test and wait for about four to six hours. At the end of six hours, you're going to measure the urine osmolarity again. Uh, you're not going to measure it yet. You're going to give them ADH here. You're going to give them ADH because you want to distinguish are they producing enough ADH or uh, is it a central problem? If it's a central problem, they're not going to synthesize enough ADH, right? If it's a central problem, you're not going to. But if it's a nephrogenic problem, do you think they have enough ADH in the system? The answer is yes. So at this point, you're going to administer ADH. If it is a central problem, then obviously it's going to correct itself and the urine osmolarity is going to rise because the ADH is going to retain water, right? The function of ADH is to retain water. So when you 
repeat the urine osmolarity, the urine osmolarity is going to rise here. So then you've made your diagnosis of central uh, diabetes insipidus. But however, if it's a nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, even though you administer ADH, ADH is not the problem. The problem is at the level of your principal cell, or it's a receptor problem down there. So that, then you've made the diagnosis of nephrogenic diabetes. So let's take a look and see why. So there are two types of diabetes insipidus. We have the central diabetes insipidus, in which case you're not synthesizing enough ADH. And this could be due to many, many causes. Usually there are lesions in your CNS, and you cannot, they cannot synthesize ADH for whatever reason. In this case, what you're going to do is treat them with ADH or analog, which is DDAVP. And you'll learn about that in your pharmacology. If it is nephrogenic, there's no problem with the uh, synthesis of the ADH. So the CNS is producing enough ADH. So actually, the ADH levels are high here. So you would get high ADH levels. And so what happens in nephrogenic diabetes is they get defects in the V2 receptors or they have problems with the uh, GS proteins or uh, adenyl cyclase. So all these could cause nephrogenic diabetes. So there's no problem with the ADH levels, but it is a, mm, defects in your V2 receptors or, uh, or GS receptors and so on. Other things can also cause uh, nephrogenic diabetes, drugs such as lithium. So in this patient, what happened is since he started on lithium, lithium uh, causes nephrogenic diabetes by inhibiting your V2 receptors or make, uh, and prevents the expression of V2 receptors, which means it's also going to decrease your aquaporin uh, 2 synthesis and uh, translocation. So you have decrease, uh, decrease in your V2 receptors or they become insensitive. And so that is the reason why a patient had a nephrogenic diabetes. Hypocalcemia does it by a similar mechanism as lithium. So these could also cause nephrogenic diabetes. So when you have a nephrogenic uh, diabetes, you need to think about all these things. And so you may want to ask their medication history and so on. So next topic we're going to talk about is something called SIADH a syndrome of inappropriate uh, antidiuretic hormone. That is what SIADH uh, stands for, syndrome of inappropriate ADH or SIADH. So what happens here is that's usually due to an ADH-secreted uh, secreting tumor. And usually the tumor is at an ectopic location and usually generally due to something uh, like oat cell carcinoma in the lung. So you could have ADH coming from a carcinoma, oat cell carcinoma in the lung or at some ectopic location. And so what that means is this ADH is not under the regular feedback mechanism. So what do you think this ADH in the system will do to the ADH in your hypothalamus? Is it going to increase it or suppress it? It's going to suppress it, right? Your endogenous ADH from your hypothalamic uh, access would be suppressed, right? Hypothalamus and pituitary access, that would be suppressed because you have ectopic ADH, and that's not under any feedback control because this tumor keeps secreting more and more ADH. I want you to understand this concept. Uh, so, if, so, what hap so let's take a look at what's going to happen if you have excess ADH. So if you have excess ADH, of course, that's going to cause water retention because one of the functions of ADH 
is to cause water retention. So if you're going to retain more water, what's, what do you think that's going to do to your urine osmolarity? It's going to increase. So you're getting increase in your, your urine osmolarity. And what do you think is going to happen to your serum osmolarity? Because you're getting more water into the system without the sodium, right? So your osmolarity, serum osmolarity is going to decrease. Your plasma osmolarity is going to decrease. Again, do you think these individuals are going to be uh, hypervolemic and edematous? Yes or no? Because they're retaining more water, do you think they would have hypervolemia and edema? Yes or no? Hyper? Yes? I see, I see yes, and the answer is no. <laughs> okay, and I'll explain to you why. So the ADH is drawing in a lot of fluid, right? So what happens to your blood pressure? It's going to increase. So what is your heart going to do with the ANP? Okay, it's going to try to excrete sodium and water, right? And what do you think is going to happen to your GFR? GFR is going to increase. So if you have an increased rate of GFR, that's going to excrete your water. So these individuals, even though initially they may have hypovolemia, initially they, because you're retaining more water, but as soon as the body senses that the, there's too much water in the system because of increased GFR, it is going to try to excrete water. And also, if the V2 receptors are exposed to ADH for long periods of time, that is going to desensitize your V2 receptors. So the V2 receptors are not going to uh, absorb more and more water because they're going to be desensitized. And so you'll have also decreased expression of your aquaporins, uh, right? So you're not going to insert that many water channels. You would still retain water, but not as much to make them edematous. They would still be uvolemic because your, uh, your kidneys, is go uh, kidneys are going to adjust it and your other mechanisms will kick in and adjust it. So they're not going to wind up with swelling and edema like in heart failure, congestive heart failure, cirrhosis of liver, and so on. Yes? The urine initially would be concentrated, but it's not a perfect adjustment. You would still retain water. Even though you're losing sodium and water, it's still retaining. You're going to lose some sodium and water, okay? But your urine, it's not a perfect adjustment, so you would still gets some concentration of urine. Usually in a side, it doesn't correct fully, so you would still have urinary concentration. And that's why your plasma osmolarity would still be low in SIADH. It won't be at 290 milliosmoles, it would be much below that, maybe 280 or below. So how do you treat this? The way you treat this is with your ADH antagonist and and that, uh, and that is known as demiclocycline and water restriction. And so what that does is it's going to inhibit uh, at your, your V2 receptors, and that's how you're going to, uh, it's going to act on your ADH. Uh, it, I'm not sure about that. I have to check. I, I have like a mental block on the mechanism, how it exactly does that. So we'll talk about it uh, in a later slide. I have a mental block, so I can't think of how the exact mechanism. It has something to do with the V2 receptors. Okay? So that's how you're going to treat it. But you'll learn this in your pharmacology. Okay? So the next hormone we're going to talk about is your oxytocin. Your oxytocin 
is the next posterior pituitary hormone. This is a pretty straightforward hormone. And it has two triggers for release, um, basically. Again, you require an action potential for its release. The first trigger is baby suckling at mom's breast. So nursing of the baby, there are mechanoreceptors in the nipple area and mom's breast that will feed back onto your hypothalamus to synthesize and secrete your oxytocin. And the second trigger is, uh, the, second trigger is uh, the pressure against cervix, and that usually happens during uh, last trimester close to the birth of the baby, just uh, as the baby's head drops into the cervical canal, there's going to be an increased degree of stretch. This stretch is then just going to feed back onto your hypothalamus to trigger an action potential, and this would then cause release of your oxytocin. And again, more oxytocin means more uterine contractions, more stretch, and this whole cycle will continue until the baby is born. So these are the two reasons why you get release of your oxytocin. Uh, again, this is an example of your positive feedback effect. So what are the target cells for oxytocin? You have two target cells uh, for oxytocin. One is your smooth muscle in the uterus. Uh, and the way it does it is oxytocin will combine to its receptor to synthesize and secrete your IP3-DAG. And this will increase your intracellular calcium and cause smooth muscle contraction. The other target tissue is also, are also the myoepithelial, smooth muscle in your myoepithelial cells because milk does not flow into the ductal system unless uh, you get contraction uh, of these ducts, right? And oxytocin is what is going to cause milk ejection re reflex or milk won't flow into the ductal system unless the oxytocin causes its release. So uh, what are other functions of oxytocin we did talk about? You did the pregnancy DLA, right? You did the pregnancy DLA? So you know the functions of oxytocin. It can be used to augment labor. Right, it can be used to augment labor. Again, there are many other theories that are postulated. They said that oxytocin causes bonding between the mother and the baby. That is the current thought. We're not sure, and that's why the baby and the mom bond. That's one of the things, uh, one of the theories. And also, some studies have said that, that if you have lots of oxytocin, you're more generous. <laughs> okay, so that increases your generosity. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I guess, if you're generous, then you, I guess you have to measure your oxytocin levels to see if that's true or not. But some studies say that, we're not sure yet, okay? So uh, this is basically a summary slide of your oxytocin, and it shows that it has two triggers, basically babies suckling at mom's breast. Normally the milk synthesizer sitting in your glands in your myoepithelial cells, but it doesn't flow into your ductal system but the baby suckling at mom's best will feed back positively onto your uh, hypothalamus to cause oxytocin release and um, cause milk ejection. Again, um, this slide causes a lot of excitement. If you look at this, does this look like a baby? <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know, terrible artist, right? I don't envy the mother, okay. Again, <laughs> just during labor, okay, let's finish this. Just during labor, the baby's head is going to push against the cervical wall 
and the cervix is going to stretch, and that is again going to feed back onto your hypothalamus, and that will cause release of your oxytocin. More oxytocin means more uterine contractions until the baby is born. I'm sure this mom had a tough time with the baby, right? Okay, let's do one more question and then we'll call it a day. Okay, pretty good. So you got the concept here. So I'm going to stop right here, and I will see you later for half the IMCQ session, which is four. So uh, I'll see you later, and then we'll pick up on Monday after this.